Hello, and welcome to the Lakeshore Records podcast, On Cue With. For this episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking with the incomparable Chris Bowers, an Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning composer, producer, and pianist, whose music can be heard in Netflix's smash hit, Bridgerton, Chris's Oscar-nominated documentary, A Concerto is a Conversation, The United States vs. Billie Holiday, Bad Hair, Space Jam, A New Legacy, Respect, King Richard, When They See Us, and so much more. We discussed how Chris created Bridgerton's signature sound by bridging Impressionism, modernity, and traditional classical music, the exploration of narrative and emotion, the influence of Ravel's harmonic language on jazz, his grandfather's effortless counter to imposter syndrome, adopting a growth mindset versus staying in one lane, the challenges of diversity discourse, how recording music in the pandemic can increase intimacy, pleasure versus work ethic, singing in the flow state, orchestral swing, innate talent versus early exposure, Stravinsky's musical storytelling, and so much more. Chris's incredible chart-blazing score for Bridgerton is out now worldwide via Lakeshore Records. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris as much as I did. What's up, Chris? Welcome. Yo. Congratulations on absolutely everything. I can't even list everything. There's just uh, too much. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. <laughs> How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I feel, uh, uh, you know, a little recharged. I just kind of took a little bit of a break for a couple of days and um, yeah, feeling good. Awesome. Um, so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. You've got so many projects um, this year and so many accolades and, you know, Emmy nominated for Bridgerton and there were the Oscars and, and all of that. Um, I'd love to just like rewind a little bit and just ask you first and foremost, so you have a background as a cha- jazz pianist, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I don't know that we've talked about this before. What, how did you make that transition or do you look at it as a separate sort of skill set or enterprise being a player versus a composer? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's, it's never really been separate. I definitely think that it's interesting to talk with any musician that hasn't thought of themselves as a composer or a composer for narrative um and it being a big difference for them um but for me music has always been about emotion first and foremost like the reason why i fell in love with piano is when i learned how to improvise and learned that i could express where i was emotionally in any moment and go to the piano and play something and really feel that and um you know that quickly opened my eyes to the power of film music and recognizing that that's what film music is doing. And so I told my parents when I was like 12 that I wanted to, to be a film composer and also just told anybody that would listen. And a lot of my first projects came from that. Like the very first short film I scored was like uh, my first girlfriend in college had a filmmaker cousin that um, I talked about film scoring so much. And she was like, would you score my first short film? And then, um, the very first uh, documentary I scored came from this woman that was my manager for a short while after the Monk competition. And she again knew that that was a priority for me. And so she made it a priority for herself to find my first film scoring gig. Um, And also the project that for me really led to a number of things and kind of got the ball really rolling was the the Kobe Bryant documentary. And that also came from the fact that um, 
uh, a producer on that project is a friend of mine from a uh, high school all-star jazz band and I hadn't seen him since high school and he came to a show of mine in LA uh, with my band and he was like man we haven't seen each other for a while and I've been following your career and I really like the music you've been putting out and I remember when we were in that um, all-star band in high school you used to talk about film scoring and I'm producing this documentary about Kobe like would you mind maybe considering considering scoring it and that really kind of got things rolling, but all of those first projects were just because I talked about it so much because that was always the dream for me, just because again, it, it was amazing to me that there was this job where I could look at a story and look at emotion and, and convey that through music. Um, and even as a jazz pianist, I was always thinking about what is the story that we're trying to tell? Like anytime I wrote um, an instrumental piece of music, it had some sort of story to it uh, or it had some sort of like idea I was trying to get across or even just improvising, like, you know, in a jazz setting kind of go around and everybody, uh, you know, has their moment to solo and improvise. And for me, the, the, the moments that it never felt good were the moments where I was just focused on um, doing something impressive or cool or like just worrying about people, you know, uh, applauding what I was doing. The moments that felt uh, most like, uh, a flow state or like out of body experience at the moments where I was like, where, where am I at emotionally? Like, where am I at? What, what emotion do I want to convey right now in this solo? And let me just keep focusing on that. And if I improvise from that place, it would feel right, you know? And so I think that again, for me, it's never really been that different just because I've always been thinking about emotion and narrative whenever I uh, was in the jazz space as well. Where does that come from? Where does your, love and pension for storytelling come from is that something that you yeah I think I think honestly my dad I mean my dad was a writer and and he was a writer for for film and tv and you know like wrote for what's happening and and Keenan and Kel and like all these shows when I was a kid um and because of that though he always would articulate um what was happening in a story when we, were, when we were watching a movie um, through his eyes as a writer. So he would always be like, oh, this is what's happening here. Or like, you know, the clock is starting now. And like, this is what we're, we're um, waiting for uh, in the story at this point. And, you know, I think that having him um, and just the fact that I, I used to read his scripts when I was a kid, like there were a couple of films he was working on that he would ask me to read and, and reading those stories. I just thought that it was so cool that um, he was responsible for creating these worlds with with words. Um, and so I think that I never, I never had dreams of being a writer. I was never like looking to do that, but I feel like having such a close connection with music and having this dad that um, uh, was writing most days when I was a kid, I, I think that that probably uh, had something to do with that. It's the part that also I find very interesting is like, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but there's, 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 there's a large precedent for jazz pianists that maybe let's say look like you, hmm. right? But when you're talking about film composition, there's not really as much of a blueprint, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's laid out for you and like in terms of representation in the music industry, generally speaking, but in the film film space and the composition space in particular, mm 
Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, not suddenly, I mean, via a lot of hard work and, you know, amazing compositions I've seen you grow as an individual and as a, as a composer and as an artist and as a storyteller into, you know, Bridgerton is like the biggest phenomenon, you know, entertainment property, like of the pandemic, essentially. Yeah. Plus the album is like on fire, you know, it's like, yeah you know, a charting album, not just in the film soundtrack space, but like on the popular charts. Mm. And then something like Space Jam, which is like, I don't even know if there have been black composers who have scored something of that budget. I mean, there may be, but I'm not sure. aware. Yeah, sure. And so it's like, how, did, is, is this on your mind during this process? Like, is this, is this just something I'm throwing out there? Or is this something that you find that you have to navigate in a particular way? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I feel like lately I've been trying to, uh, it's definitely on my mind, but in a uh, a way that I feel more um, annoyed by, to be honest, you know, it's like one of those things that like, um, uh, like my parents, I feel very fortunate that my parents did a lot of work. Um, you know, they didn't really come from very much and, and definitely like built them, built their own uh, wealth in, in so many ways. And they put me in environments very intentionally so that I wouldn't feel like I was uh, less than anybody else around me. Like I've, I've always felt like going to a school like Colburn, for example, uh, which is, uh, you know, an incredible school and also is a decent amount of money for, for, you know, any sort of extracurricular music education. And I know there were times when my parents couldn't necessarily afford it or like, you know, my grandparents had to, uh, you know, uh, contribute uh, financially for us to be able to go there. Um, and yet they never allowed me to feel that. So I always felt like, oh yeah, I'm just like any of these other kids that are here getting this education and there's nothing different about me. And I feel like, um, like you said, especially aspiring to be a jazz pianist, I also never felt, um, othered quote unquote in that space even though I was usually one of the only black kids in a lot of those jazz programs actually and like even at my high school here Loxa I think you know when I was there there may be like five or less jazz musicians in the program at one time um, uh, that, that were black kids and so I feel like it was something I always noticed but but when you're looking at the where jazz comes from I think again I always felt like I belong here and so it wasn't until getting more and more into film scoring, um, like I'll never forget doing the Sundance Composers Lab and getting there and, and on the way to Skywalker Ranch, we're like meeting all the other composers and they just started talking about, uh, you know, composers in this industry and people that maybe shouldn't belong based on their skill level or any of that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh man, like I like I don't I shouldn't be here like I was like man you guys don't want to hear me like like you know I think that that was for me the first time I clocked in my in my mind a feeling of imposter syndrome and and then you know then talking to uh and then like getting bigger jobs and feeling that more and more and then of course like having conversations like this where people are articulating that or, or talking to mentors of mine like Terrence Blanchard or Marcus Miller about how difficult it is to be a black composer and like all those kinds of things. And then it started to, uh, it starts to become a thought uh, a bit more. And what's so, when I say like, it feels more annoying than anything else is that it really comes down to the work at the end of the day. And like, it's so frustrating how much that can distract from 
the work and like and you know Quincy Jones was who he is or any of those black composers are who they are because of the work that they've done and the studying that they've done and you know Quincy studied with Nadia Boulanger so of course he can write the way that he does and orchestrate the way that he does um, and uh, you know I think that adding this additional pressure that that uh, society can almost add because of race or like representation and all that kind of stuff is definitely real but also at the same time for me it's always felt like um a bit of a uh, a bit of a distraction because like if anything th i think honestly working on this this short film with my grandfather you know uh, the concerto uh, as a conversation film was really helpful because i felt all this imposter syndrome and i sat down and talked to him and in my mind, I was like, of course, this black man from the South that grew up on a farm that grew up in the Jim Crow South that um, uh, left home when he was 17 years old and then started a business at 20 and was, you know, living in Los Angeles and trying to navigate all that as a business owner, as a, as a, uh, you know, father. Of course, he felt imposter syndrome. And of course, he felt like he shouldn't be there. And like, what was he doing as a black man in this space? And having that conversation with him, he was like, what do you know? Like, why would, I, why would I ever think that? Like, why would I ever doubt myself? Like the rest of the world is like, why would I also have those thoughts? And the simplicity with which he articulated that confidence and articulated this uh, thinking of like, you know, you can't stop me and I'm just gonna do whatever I can. And even if you try to stop me, I'll find a way around it. Uh, just reminded me that, you know, had he been plagued by the pressure of being quote unquote, like a black man in that space, I wonder if it would have been um, harder for him or if he would have stopped at some point or you know any of that kind of stuff. And so I feel like it's such an interesting thing to definitely feel that on a regular basis and also feel, I feel very fortunate and like uh, so happy that I'm having these opportunities that, that are broadening the representation for anybody else that's coming up because I definitely feel like it would have been a different experience maybe if I saw a bunch of black composers that I could look up to. But, um, but for me personally, I try not to think about it too much because otherwise I just start to, the imposter syndrome starts to creep in a bit. That makes sense. I, uh, first of all, I just have to say like, you know, concerto is a conversation going all the way back to the concerto itself, <laughs> which is just an incredible thing. I was fortunate enough to, to experience it and, you know, the concept behind it of, um, I'm going to butcher it, but the, the, the orchestra is sort of personifying the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I just thought that was just such an incredible, an incredible piece. And I really hope that it gets released in some version at some point. Yeah. Same, um, and same. yeah, you, you went to the Oscars for it. I yeah. mean, <laughs> how was that? Yeah. Pretty mind blowing. I mean, I, you know, that, that piece was really, something that my co-director Ben Proudfoot and I just did for the love of it and the, the love of the, the story and idea. Like originally it was something that the LA Phil commissioned and and then once we told them we wanted to make a much bigger story, they were like, oh, we just wanted like a two minute video. And so they were like, if you guys, uh, if you guys want to go off and do that, just, uh, you know, go ahead, good luck. And so when we asked my grandfather to to sit down for this interview it was literally just for me it was like wow I'm gonna get to capture this story with my grandfather on like this beautiful cinematography that I know Ben's company is known for and and it was just gonna be a really amazing thing that my family could have and that I could have and share with my kids and so on and so forth and so then when the New York Times got involved and then Ava got involved and then the Oscar nomination like all of those things just felt like you know uh 
continuing to put you know icing on the cake essentially and and with that it was just amazing to watch my grandfather experience that like I think that feels like such an amazing I don't know if any you know hopefully I get back to the Oscars at some point but I don't think that any trip there would feel as special as this just because this felt like you know um I was giving him this gift uh, 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 that was almost a thank you for how much he sacrificed for our family and for me. And, and um, yeah, I think that that was pretty, pretty incredible just to see him experience that throughout the process. Yeah. And, you know, your family, you do have this sort of family uniquely, I don't know, supportive ecosystem, it seems around you. Like, yeah. I mean, every, every family is dysfunctional in their own way. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not, it's not like all butterflies and rainbows, but like, <laughs> yeah. uh, it is very interesting to see how it like translates across generations. It's almost like when, when and I've seen this with my, with my wife's family, you know, mm. who like her father grew up in Mexico, the mountains of Mexico with like nothing. Yeah. And like, you know, somehow ends up coming over here or like my grandparents, you know, my grandfather who was in the Holocaust and then like comes over, like it's, 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 it's this crazy thing when you see people transcend sort of generational trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And how that can be such a light for everyone. And like, I just think it's, you know, so commendable what you did with that project. And I have to imagine your grandfather was just like thrilled. Yeah. Yeah, he kept like saying, um, like I remember the day I called him when we got the Oscar nomination and he was like uh, a bit emotional, which is not his thing at all. <laughs> and also he just was like, he kept being like, I don't know what I did to deserve this. And like, it, it, it honestly makes me emotional even just like thinking about that thought from him just because it's like, what are you like, what are you talking about? But also it's, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely pretty amazing to, to see for sure. So in terms of Bridgerton, now, I, I'm not saying that you were 100% aware that this was going to be like a global zeitgeist changer yeah, or whatever. But like you had to have had some sense given the people involved, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely was excited by, you know, how much I know Shonda and Shondaland's ability to just like create, you know, a hit show. <laughs> I feel like they're just so good at it. And um and I also was really excited to see what they would do in this new space. You know, like, I felt like I already knew that they were going to uh, try to do something that they hadn't ever done before, given that this was going to be their first Netflix show. And, and um, yeah, I, I felt like those were the things that, and the fact that they were giving me the opportunity to write music that I hadn't been writing before um, in other spaces, I felt like were the things that made me feel like, yeah, I definitely want to do this, this show. I actually, I didn't know anything about uh, the books or like, I didn't know that it was a book bef- until I started looking up uh, or doing research on the project and all of that. And I think that also made me feel like, oh, there's already an audience and so maybe it'll be somewhat popular with those people. But, but yeah, the, the way it came out, I definitely was not expecting that. What were the initial conversations? How was it framed to you? Cause it's like, if you were to call it a period piece, it sort of doesn't really do much justice right and there's something very unique and you know we were talking about representation earlier yeah yeah yeah. right like what were those conversations like in the beginning yeah I mean a a lot of it was you know I remember the first call from Scott Collins and he was just like you know we have this show it's set in the 
Regency period in the early 1800s, but you know, it's Shondaland, so you know, we're going to do something very different. It's not going to be, you know, your grandmother's period piece, and and um, and we want to that uh, we want that reflected in everything from the way it's shot and the costuming and the casting and also the music. And so, you know, early on, a lot of our uh, ex exploration, once I finally met Chris Van Dusen and talked to him and Betsy and everybody else on the team about what we were looking for, it was a lot of trial and error of trying to find that way of representing that uh, modernity through through the music. Um, and I appreciate how patient they were because it took like, took months for us to find the sound for that show um and they just were really trusting throughout the whole the whole process and allowed me to go down these rabbit holes where where we met dead ends and that can be a scary process but uh, it's really amazing to have a team or, or the support where they kind of allowed that process to to continue to flourish um one of the iterations you went through was like chopped and screwed right yep exactly yeah yeah and and what like why didn't that work? Did I think you know it, it didn't work. Yeah, I think I think it was just a little too. Um, I, I think, it, especially looking back in hindsight, it felt like it was trying a bit too hard. Like the the idea was like taking orchestral instruments and sounds and like and chopping them up as samples and making like beats out of them. And I also feel like it it made it feel a bit too expected. You know, I think that you see Shondaland and and. Like, I think there could have been a version of this show where you had like regular pop pieces that are played like needle drops and you have like a score that sounds like a super modern score against it. And I think that, you know, that, that's kind of been done a lot at this point as far as like having something old and having the music really modern. Um, and so I think trying to find uh, a more creative middle ground uh, proved to be the right way to go. Yeah, I'm curious. I believe you said Ravel sort of like opened things up for you. Yeah, but I, I, if I wouldn't, it would be great if you remember or if you could articulate what specifically is it the the harmonic structure? Is it a different orchestration or? Yeah, I think it was like a few things. It's it's like the uh, definitely the harmonic structure and like the way that. Um, the way that his pieces feel um, a bit dreamy and, and have this uh, uh, very like water-like quality, especially like the, the first thing that really helped that was working on Simon and Daphne's theme and looking at some of his piano pieces. And the thing I really love about Ravel's piano pieces is that you'll have this undulating arpeggio that's happening the whole time. And when you're listening to it, it sounds so peaceful and it sounds so easy and, and uh, you know, has like a very calm, tranquil quality to it. And I remember starting to, even when I was in college, like starting to try to learn some of those pieces on piano. And I was like, it's really hard to play, <laughs> to play this arpeggiato really, really soft and like bring this melody out really clearly. And to have that, um, yeah, to have that going on uh, felt like, um, uh, a really cool thing to try to go for. Um, and then, like you said, the harmonic structure, I think was a big thing and, and really exciting for me because it opened up uh, a harmonic language that was more accessible to me. Like, I think I actually would have been, I would have struggled a little bit more had they been looking for um, uh, the 
really, really traditional sound. Like that was the second route that we went was trying to find, trying to write something that was incredibly authentic to the period. And uh, one that's like a, an era that I know by listening to it, but I've never really written that much in that style. And also harmonically, it's, it's pretty simplistic. Like, you know, it's just like, like one, four or five, like some interesting uh, passing chords and things like that. But you're not like sitting in a really dense harmony for very long in a lot of that style of music. Um, and so being able to open up this more impressionistic era of classical music made it so that like I've always loved Ravel because of how much I feel like Ravel's harmonic language is just one step away from jazz. And so for me, it always felt like, and a lot of that, those French composers um, feel very, very close to jazz. Like, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of my favorite jazz musicians that are inspired by classical music um, are really in love with a lot of that era of classical writing. And so it felt a little bit closer to home for me. Um, and yeah, it definitely kind of opened up uh, a different sound. I feel like in addition to the, it's hard to characterize the score, right? Because it's like, is it classical? Is it modern classical? Is it, you know, like, and I don't know that it needs to be, but one thing that I, that I noticed that's very unique to your Bridgerton score relative to any other scores that I can think of in recent history or any other scores is also the production. Hmm. And I think, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, to my ear, there's just like this, like glistening sheen to everything hmm. that I think might be because it's recorded in a pandemic and, and there's all these overdubs, yep. right? It's, yep. it's, I mean, you can articulate this better than me, but like the, the, you weren't able to record with the live orchestra, right? Yeah. right? And so you had to have musicians overdone themselves in their own space. And I think my theory, as I listen to it repeatedly, it's almost like you're getting more of their personality and nuance mm. in each uh, layer. And it sort of like stacks up to this quality that makes it produced in the modern era, more like the mo modern production. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would totally agree with you. I mean, you know, that's, first of all, that's all, all Stephen Kay, the, the engineer that I work with on most of my scores. He's um, uh, the mixing like uh, genius behind, behind the score, just as far as like, you know, knowing how to make all of it work. Uh, you know, we, we had a couple of projects or one project before Mrs. America that we were able to kind of figure some of that out with beforehand, but really it was him. Um, you know, deciding how to make sure every, he was getting the sound we wanted from each of those musicians. And like you said, having them layer themselves, we'd often have them layer themselves with a different instrument if they had one so that it was a slightly different sound. But like you're, like you're saying, you're getting a much closer sound from each person. So instead of it being, you know, eight people or 20 people in a room and you have some mics that are a little close, but most of the mics are a little bit further away, you're kind of getting this overall sound from everyone with this we definitely have so much more um, uh, control and and intimacy from each of those recordings um, because they're recording usually in a really small space um, and then he would add his own reverbs that um, I, forget, I have to ask him which reverb it was but there's a reverb where he was actually able to virtually sit people in a room and then you know use that space um, 
as the reverb channel for everything. And then um, we did mix in every now and then a bit of the samples as well. And so I feel like that probably adds a little bit to that sound. But, you know, I think, um, uh, and, and for me personally, I think I wanted a bit more of like a dreamy kind of quality to the music yeah. and, and sound to it. And so that probably also dictated a bit of how he went about mixing in and, and, uh, and using reverb and things like that. Yeah, it's like glistening. Dreamy is a good word, but it like glistens. It's like, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the cue. Grand. Uh, grand finish, maybe? Yeah, 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 that one. Like it has this like, you know, it's regal and it's all that, right? Yeah. But we're used to that, but it has this like shine to it. It's just like, I don't know. It's almost like the equivalent of like After Effects. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, for sure. Um, like it's not just a light it's like a light with like the, the green sheen around it or something in totally. Like you know I mean? yeah. <laughs> totally totally yeah i totally hear that um so yeah congrats man it's just a it's just a killer score do you think that you would i mean we don't know where the world is going and we don't know what's what's happening exactly in the current moment like things are a little bit more opened up but for season two or for other projects, would you elect to record in this way if you had both options? Yeah, I think that for this show in particular, you know, I, I would I would probably want to do that just because the sound is so specific now. And, and you know, I know that the seasons are going to slightly change as far as who they're focusing on, but I feel like the sound itself would be nice to kind of keep consistent. Um, and also, I, I you know, we're probably going to start working on it later this year. And, and it doesn't really seem like we'll be in a place where we'd be able to do that without getting everybody tested and, you know, adding those, those protocols and expenses and things like that. So it kind of feels like uh, it would be easier to have everybody do it from home. I think outside of this project, I'm not really sure, you know, it's, it's interesting having just finished a couple of projects where we were able to go into a studio and hear like a full orchestra and, and, um, that felt like I, I just definitely missed that. And, and it was pretty incredible to see how that turned out. Um, but uh, I feel like every now and then there might be a project that comes up that where this would be an interesting way to go, especially because a lot of my writing is like really, really um, uh, intricate as far as like the rhythmic aspects, just because I've always felt like, you know, the more and more I studied uh, it's interesting coming from the jazz space and there was always a joke especially at Juilliard that like you know having uh, classical musicians or having an orchestra try to swing is like never going to happen and that like you know it's really difficult to have um, classical music musicians play pop music with a certain type of feel to it and like syncopation and all that being very difficult and then the more I, I was like studying scores of some of my favorite pieces the more I was like like this is incredibly difficult rhythmically. Like this is so dense rhythmically. And, and like, if they're able to do that, then they should be able to do anything else. And so yeah. like, you know, and so now it's kind of like pushed me to want to challenge myself with how I'm writing things rhythmically and all of that. And there are definitely times when we get into a studio and we have a group of players. I mean, Space Jam, it happened a number of times where they're trying and, and now, especially being spread out and all of that, but having them try to lock into these rhythms uh, wouldn't always be the easiest thing and recording remotely allows us that that 
you know, flexibility to be able to line people up and really get things very metronomically specific if we want and, and choose how, how quantized we want it to feel and all of that. So there is a part of that production too that I think is, is uh, advantageous sometimes with the type of writing, uh, depending on what I might want to write. Sure. I'm also thinking about like Gershwin, like that's like swung, right? I mean, and that's yeah, like for sure. Basketball players. And I mean, yeah. And also like, I think it's, it's all about, you know, how you, how you present things and break things down and, you know, like classical musicians play things like triplets all the time and triplets are more swing than the, you know, dotted a 16th note that we, that we write down as, as a swing rhythm. And, you know, it is somewhere in between. It's not that clear, but I feel like, um, you know, having those things in mind, it's, it's, it can be easy to, or not easy, but it, I think there are ways to write something that, that um, can get that feeling across. What have you not gotten to write yet that you really would like a crack at? Like genre wise or storytelling wise, or like, is there something that you're yearning to explore? Yeah, I think that um, a big like sci-fi project or a big like action kind of thing would be fun you know um it's something that I always felt like I wouldn't want to do when I was younger but the more I've kind of dipped my toes in some of that writing the more I'm like man it's it's a challenge but I would really love to try my hand at at that kind of thing um and um and also I think anything that's really really left of center you know a lot of the the scores I've done feel um you know even if they're slightly different and and slightly unexpected based on like the genre maybe it's still uh I can clearly hear references and, and know where I'm coming from and and um you know I haven't had the space necessarily yet to like write a score where you're like wait what sound is that like what is going on? like you know I think there are scores that I'm super inspired by thinking about people like you know Mika Levy or like um you know Johnny Greenwood or Trent Reznor and Atticus like you know, getting more into those kinds of spaces. I'm so so inspired by their music. I'd love to have a chance to write something that um, felt akin to that. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, so far I feel very thankful for how wide of a range um, I've been afforded the opportunity to write for. And so I'm kind of just open to whatever's gonna gonna come because it kind of feels like, um, you know, like I wasn't expecting to write anything for a film like Space Jam, you know, anytime soon. And, and to have that opportunity was such a huge challenge that um, I was so welcoming of it. So I'm pretty much open. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, congrats on Space Jam. Like my kids love it. It's such like a meta movie and I didn't think that they were going to get it. Yeah. Like, I don't understand like, get, you know, they're young, they're two and six and they're like, oh. yeah. Um, like, oh, now you're inside a computer and now there's like an algorithm and now there's this and that. And like, they totally, they totally understand it. They're like, can you be the algorithm? Can, you, can, can we fight against you and play basketball and all this and that? Um, but what I found compelling about it was amongst the music and many other things was sort of the, the fatherhood narrative. I'm a father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask you specifically because I know you told me, you know, we've spoken in other contexts, um, you, you, you articulated to me how early on you would sit down and your father would be there when you would practice. Yeah. And there's sort of a through line in Space Jam where LeBron and his son, he's like pressuring his son. To mm. And uh, his wife says something to the degree of like, um, 
you know, he doesn't need a coach. He needs a father. Right. 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 Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Hey Sam, why are you calling me out right now? <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, and so like, like this morning when I was playing space jam with them, like playing whatever version they of, of space jam, they, they wanted to play with the basketball. I was like, don't coach, be a dad, just play. <laughs> yeah. But I'm curious, like, about your experience, because you are, I mean, I think it's a useful analogy for you. You are a very high level, sort of like athlete in terms of your, you know, musicianship. And at a young age, you were, I don't know what the word is. Were you pushed? Were you, were you encouraged? Were you, what was your relationship like there? In yeah. Success. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a number of things. I think, um, you know, my parents decided before I was born, like, you know, that they wanted me to play piano. And and so in a lot of ways, it's one of those weird things where, you know, how much of that is um, uh, like will versus like uh, programming almost as far as like, you know, my parents putting me in this path um, before I was old enough to really know what I wanted you know what I mean and I think that there's such a weird thing where like you might frown down on that but it's also I read some book recently that like talks about how we think people are born with talent and how that's just not true at all it's just that they had the exposure and experience in that field for much longer than anybody else whether they put in the hours at some point more than anybody else or they were exposed early on and so like the actual act of doing that, I feel like there's a lot of uh, like, I, I just feel appreciation for that. Cause I feel like, you know, had I not had that path so early on, I wonder what would have happened when I look at like, you know, the uh, schools that I went to early on, or even like the neighborhood I grew up in, which is not a bad neighborhood at all, but more so just like, you know, most of my peers uh, weren't, we're, we're pretty rudderless like early on like they you know we're not trying to don't have an idea what we want to be and what we want to do other than especially like black kids like other than maybe being an athlete or a rapper like I feel like most of my friends especially my black male friends they wanted to be athletes or rappers <laughs> most of them and uh and I was the weird kid that wanted to be a piano player and having that uh difference I took a lot of pride in and, and again having that connection with the instrument I, I just loved it and and I was also such an introverted nerdy kid that it was my way of being somewhat normal like I went to middle school where where um uh you know you, it was really a big thing to be cool in that space like it was a, kind of like a middle school you would see on a tv show as far as like how kids are interacting with each other and treating each other and all of that and I wasn't mess with because I was uh, the piano player that could like play a Tupac song on piano if you if you asked them to or I could play like a boys to men song on piano or like you know I think people had a respect for it that that um allowed me to feel a little bit cooler than maybe I was um and then as far as with my dad you know I think that it it, it was it, it's been interesting to see his development through that whole process because like when I was young it was that coaching type of mentality like he sat behind me every day while I practice it was all about competition it was all about like who are the other kids that are in your class and are you better than them? And, and, and most so of the what? time, Oh yeah. Competitive. Yeah. Super competitive. And, and also um, competitive to the point where nothing is good enough. You know what I mean? Like, like I remember, and, th and that was across the board. I remember getting 
one C on a report card once and telling my parents why they shouldn't be uh, disappointed in that. And my dad drove me to Skid Row and was like, this is what you're aspiring to. If you if you're if you're aspiring to be that average, like it was just like that level of like, you know, uh, yeah, and and you were like you were like five years old. <laughs> I was a little older in that one, but there are definitely times where like, yeah, super young that he was he was all about trying to push me to be the best and and questioning whether or not I wanted to wanted that, and we got into a a, a big argument about that when I was like fifteen or something where I had a teacher that. Um, this piano player, Gerald Clayton, whose dad is John Clayton and, and comes from a family of an ama- amazing musicians and teachers. And he went to my high school before me. And I remember when I was a freshman, so I probably was younger, actually, I was maybe like 12, 13. I had a lesson with him and he was like, I was improvising and I was just kind of like playing little licks that I knew and lines that I knew. And he was like, man, you need to sing what you're playing. Like you need to sing what you're playing because if you sing what you're playing, it's coming from you. It's like coming out of your spirit and what you're playing is connected to what you're trying to say. And I was like, oh, wow. Like he just blew my mind. And I was like, that's what this is. Like that's what jazz is and improvisation is. And so I remember starting to, I did a lot of competitions when I was in high school. Um, also my parents really thought of, of music as a way to get me scholarship money and get me into a good school. And um I was prepping for a competition and my dad was like what like you need to do something that's going to impress us like why aren't you trying to work on a run that's going to be like really impressive and all that kind of stuff and and I was like I don't want to do that like this this is actually for me to express myself and I want to figure out how to do that on the highest level possible and work on my skills so that I can do that but I'm not trying to prepare something that feels impressive I want to just be myself and hopefully that will be impressive enough and we bumped heads on that. And that was something that he felt really disappointed in almost that I didn't want to be that competitor in his mind. And, um, you know, I think it took a while for, for him to start to feel like, oh, okay, like maybe you're right. Like maybe you, maybe what you, maybe you have, you, ha- you haven't figured out. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, it's beautiful to see now he has this 180 where now like I'm the one that's hard on myself and like feel like, oh, I could have done better. That could have been a little bit better. And he's like, no, like, you, like, man, you're doing amazing. Like, what, like, just, it, like spend time with your wife like take it easy like why are you you know I think he's he's uh now um really started to see how um you know like he had already set the wheels in motion and he didn't need to be that like you said that that like um coach or that that driving factor um but yeah it definitely was a little bit of both things when I was a kid I think yeah I think it's it's sort of like that that tension in the in the movie they actually said there's another line where they say something like um like dads don't really respond well to anything other than power. Right? Yeah, 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 for sure. That's and a great like, yeah, the <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think it's true. It's like you have to butt heads and you find it to kind of find, it's like you're both right, right? Yeah, but yeah, it's just sure. a question of degrees. Totally. And, and I find what I've found very interesting about your story is like, and you know, I kind of reel you on this because my kids are, are musical and I'm like trying to understand like here's a yeah. person who's like from a young age was aspiring musically and I'm I'm in the position kind of like your dad was you know like yeah and so I expose them to all this but I don't want to push them too hard but I also want to encourage them and I, I what I find to be my sort of uh conclusion based on what you articulate to me is sort of like it's almost like it's better than you use the word rudderless, which I think is really great. Mm. I think very useful. 
Mm. It's like, okay, here's something that you can reject. Here's something that I'm giving you the option to develop this skill set. And here's a path that you can take. Mm-hmm. And then via you chiseling through that, you can decide, actually, this is not me. This is me. Mm-hmm. Right. Or these are both me and I can integrate it all into who I am and, and what I choose to do. But it's uh, in a way, I feel it's better to encourage something mm-hmm. rather than nothing. Yeah, totally. And I, and it's also so tough because like, you know, when you're a kid, like you don't know what's good for you, really. Like you, 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 you're responding to like w- the pleasures of life and like the desires yeah. of life. And like, as we get older, we realize that like, that's not necessarily going to like, that's good to maybe give us an inkling as to what makes us happy, but that's not necessarily living your life that way. Not, it's not necessarily going to lead to something that's, that's fruitful. And I feel like, you know, I'm not a parent yet. And like, you're such a great dad. I feel like it's, it's such a tough thing to be able to, um, to find that balance between creating those structures and, and, you know, encouraging kids to, to, uh, really discover why it's important to have a work ethic or consistency or any of those things and also allowing them the freedom to do what feels good so that they don't feel pressured and and you know I think that my parents found a really good balance with that and I think I also just happened to fall in love with jazz and fall in love with like expression through music and all that because had I not I mean they tried the same thing with my brother and it didn't work for music because that wasn't his thing and and they were trying to fit him into this mold of like being a musician just like me and and he wanted to actually be a writer funny enough and and it wasn't until he got to college that my parents were like oh okay like we should just let you do that because in his free time that's all he wanted to do is write stories and come up with ideas and he didn't want to like practice and wasn't really loving the music the same way um so it's you know it's I guess it's like kind of also watching your kid and seeing what they respond to and how they respond to it but I talk to my wife about it all the time because she often articulates the fact that she wishes her parents forced her or or had her do something on a regular basis when she was younger because she would have been so much further along in her craft and how it wasn't until she she really decided for herself what she wanted to do but there are so many things that her parents allowed her to quit that she feels disappointed that they allowed her to do that or you know the amount of people I talked to that were like oh, I wish I could play piano but you know my parents let me quit piano and then I stopped you know and it's it's a tough position I definitely don't envy, envy you because <laughs> you. <laughs> you, you're also still very young right and you're 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 very accomplished and very young and I think the other added sort of like benefit of having blazed this path at a young age is I think you are now entering a point in your career you know you, you cited some other you'd like to do some more things that are quote unquote left of center. And I would encourage you to, I think you're in a very unique position where you can just take major creative risks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the idea. Because I mean, let's be real. Like you've got like, you know, Oscar nominated and Emmy nominated and won awards and in multiple spheres, there's classical, there's jazz, like your proficiency is proven. <laughs> sure. you, know, like, you know what I mean? Like, check you know (laughs) so what do you do right and i know you i know you have a certain sort of growth mentality about everything Mm -hmm. that you do right and Mm -hmm. it's like you can just creatively do whatever the fuck you want i think at this point like yeah people will maybe want to rein you in but i think you're (laughs) at that point 
they, you know, because that's what they always want to do, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But I think you're at that point where like the sky's the limit, man. You can do whatever. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the the goal, and I feel like I've always. It's interesting because I always aspire to surround myself by people with people that have that same mentality either for themselves or support that aspect of who I am because you know like there were so many teachers I had when I was at Juilliard who I told I wanted to be a film composer and they're like you're you're messing up your career like what are you gonna like you're like you know you have a an obligation to be a jazz pianist because of your ability to do that like why are you switching or you know so many times where I would kind of change courses and to the person uh, that had the 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 micro view and wasn't seeing the macro like long game view that I was at least for my career was always like what are you doing like why aren't you focusing on this or like why aren't you trying to do this and and like you said with this more growth mindset there's definitely like uh you know certain things that I'm aiming for super far out in the distance and I always want to have people around me that are going to support me in making those shifts and things like that so I'm definitely at the point right now where you know there's still uh projects that I want to take just to because I love the the aspect of film composing that is just you know the job you know and, and not in like a negative way more so just like I fell in love with with composers like John Williams and Thomas Newman and like you know when you look at their repertoire like a lot of it is like them being consistent with like their sound and what they do and all of that and not necessarily like changing it up and like being random and all of that kind of stuff um so I, I still feel like I love uh, trying to carve out a career in that way, but also at the same time, like more in the live space, I think, or more in my artist career, like trying to put out an album or a project that's that's like, you know, very different or not really expected for for a film composer or a jazz musician, and and see if I can like develop something in that space as well. And you're also a, you're a storyteller. I mean, like beyond yeah. music, I mean, you're you're a producer um and you're you know I, I believe you said you were sort of playing with the idea of expanding the concerto um concept yeah yeah totally I mean you know right now I'm working on another concerto for the LFL actually um it's a horn concerto and and that has a whole narrative to it that um I'm exploring that I, I've written this like short story um with the help of my wife and, and a writer friend of mine and now I'm scoring that in my mind with the concerto and, you know, who knows what that would turn into uh, with like having this story now. And, and uh, I think I'm also just inspired by composers that think that way, like, you know, uh, looking at uh, any composer in the classical space, like Stravinsky comes to mind, for example, that, that, you know, told these stories with their music and, and conveyed these like huge ideas and, and um, uh, narratives I feel like it's something that I'm looking to explore. And I feel like there are so many composers that are doing that now that I'm inspired by as well, like Oliver Arnold's or Max Richter, or like, you know, even Johan Johansson before he passed, like, you know, in their artist space, they're um, writing music and creating projects that uh, are much bigger than just a piece of music. And, and I'm really inspired by that. Yeah, I think also what's, I'm very personally very excited. And I think it would be really interesting to see you and, um like functional music right mm. like in in terms of like there's uh you know in different cultures you have music that is created specific with specificity for ritual for yeah. you know particular context and i think we're really <clears throat> yearning for that like a little bit of guidance <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah 
and it'd be really cool. Like I could see doing anything like operas, all of it, man. Like, stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, well, congratulations, man. I'm conscious of the time. I could talk to you for hours. Um, oh, same. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Uh, really, really like, uh, I guess one last question. If you can tell us anything that you have like on deck or anything that you'd like to talk about that you're working on. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of films that I just finished that are coming out. Um, I'm excited about there's uh, Respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic that comes out in a couple of weeks. And then um, uh, King Richard, the film uh, about Will Smith or no, about uh, Richard Williams uh, played by Will Smith. Uh, that's Venus and Serena Williams' dad. And um, and then this this horn concerto. I mean, uh, LA Phil has this series that they're calling Real Change, uh, R E E L. They have a few composers that they're featuring um, that you know work on projects that are uh, really highlighting underrepresented stories, and they have kind of given us each a night to do whatever we want <laughs> with the LA Phil at Disney Hall, and and um, you know me, I'm definitely taking that pretty far as far as what I want to do with it. I gave them the pitch for, for my idea for the evening and they were like, yeah, sure. And in my mind, I was like, there's no way they're going to say yes to this. So now I have to pull it off. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's really exciting. That's on November 20th. Um, and, uh, and then a couple of um, projects that are in the works for next year, but, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much it right now. I mean, Bridgerton season two and, and some other shows and, and a project with Justin Simeon, but um yeah, right now my focus is this LA Phil concert. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I can't wait. I'm super excited to go to that. Um, I'll be in the front row. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you, thank you so much for, for your time and everything. Congrats, man. Really. No, thank you. Always, always a pleasure. I appreciate you. Good to talk to you.